All right, guys, we can come on in and uh, take a seat. Happy, ha- happy Super Bowl Sunday. <laughs> I, I don't even watch football. I could care less. But it's like a national holiday, is it not? So uh, in that case, happy, happy Super Bowl Sunday to you. Uh, it is here in our city, pretty much. Anybody going to go? Anybody actually got tickets to go to this thing? Do you know anybody who's going to this thing? Okay, my kind of my kind of people. See, I'm saying I'm saying okay, Super Bowls on TV. Let's go to Disneyland. That's what I say because everyone's going to be gone. That's the time to do it. Anyways, uh, my name's Nick. I'm one of the elders here. Happy to happy to get a chance to bring God's word to us um, or for us here this morning. If you want to open your Bibles, uh, Luke chapter one. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, please raise your hand. Uh, we got ushers that will bring a Bible to you. And uh, you can keep it if you'd like one. We're in Luke chapter 1. We're going to read, actually, the same verses we read last week. I, uh, I couldn't get past it, so, so we're, we're here again. Luke 1, 67 through 80 is what we're going to read. All right, let me read and then we'll pray. Verse 67. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit. And he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Let's pray. God, if we if we were to stand before you in and of ourselves, there's no doubt that we would be guilty, condemned. We don't come this morning because of any righteousness in us. We have nothing in ourselves, Lord, to commend ourselves to you. We come boldly into the throne room because of your grace. Because of the blood of Jesus Christ. That's our claim. That's our passageway to your presence. Because of what 
Jesus has done, we stand before you here this morning blameless, righteous, even pleasing to you. Jesus, we give you the praise and the thanks for all that you have done. Lord, I ask in these moments that you would do your great work of covering. I know there are probably people in this room that come in feeling guilty, feeling ashamed, feeling lower than the ground their feet are on. And I'm asking you, Jesus, just like we see you do all over the gospel of Luke, would you come and cover the shame, cover the guilt, invite the broken, invite the low, invite the sinner into your grace, your plan, your story. Lift us up here this morning, Jesus, to pray as we get into your word. Would you minister it to us? Give me the strength to speak and and give people here the, the, the heart to receive and the ears to hear. Maybe we may we all be attentive to you as you address us here in these moments. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, last week, uh, for those of you that, that weren't here, I don't have time to go through um, what we did, but one way you could, you could sum it up, um, I think, is by saying that we came at this text, this hymn that Zechariah is, is singing here, we came at it from kind of a, a negative angle, you might say. Um, I'm going to move this before I collide with it later on. I know that could be dangerous. Um, but you might say that, that we came at it from a, from a negative perspective. What I mean by that isn't uh, negative and that it was all down, but that we looked at the things that this horn of, of, of salvation that's going to you know, be raised up in the house of David, this Davidic Messiah, we looked at the things this Davidic Messiah conquered. What he came to defeat, what he came to do away with, the, the stuff that he came to kick out of the story of God's children. And um, what we saw, uh, namely, as we kind of looked at that text more, um, more closely, is that he came to, to deal with, to conquer, overcome the three most basic, fundamental, ancient foes of the, the, the people of God. Satan, sin, and death. These three, from the very beginning, have kind of been this, this, the, a part of this interconnected, kind of coherent system of destruction. Okay? You, you, if you're going to take down one, you have to take down all. If we're going to get rid of death, we've got to get rid of sin and Satan. If we're going to get rid of sin, we've got to deal with Satan and death. They're all, it's a package deal. And so Jesus comes, and we looked at this last week, on the cross in one in the same moment, with one swing of the blade, all three enemies fall. It goes down. Let Satan have his way, sin have its way, death all the way down. But when he rises up, the enemies are conquered. It's triumph in this Messiah for us. And that's where we ended. That's where we ended. Mainly looking at what Jesus did away with. (laughs) What he defeated. And that's what I mean by negative perspective that we looked at this text from. And you know what? I I was ready to move on to chapter 2. I was thinking, okay, we are now... It is a big moment for Mercy Hill. Luke chapter 2. But talking with my wife afterwards and just... 
you know, all the things I had to cut out of my previous manuscript, I just like, I can't. I, I, I just can't move on. There's just, there's just one more thing I want to say. Um, here's the reason why. All this negative stuff that Christ is doing away with, this, 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 you know, defeat of, of, of Satan, sin, and death, it's all moving towards something positive that, while a goal in itself, is still a means to an even greater goal. I used the analogy last week of, of Christ dealing with cancer, right? And it's kind of like this. If you're, you, you don't go to the doctor, have him operate, remove the tumor so that you can kind of lay, spend the rest of your life in, in the hospital bed cancer free. You, you, you deal with the tumor, with the bad stuff, so that you can get on with your life. So you can go and do something positive. Right? And that's kind of what is here present in this text, and I wanted to bring it out for us this morning. He triumphs over all this negative stuff so he can initiate something overwhelmingly positive. And for this, let me direct our attention to verses 74 and 75. This is kind of a where it's all kind of summed up for us. What is all this moving towards? What is God hoping to do with us in overcoming Satan's sin and death? It's hard to pick this up because it's all one run-on sentence, but we'll start, verse 74. That we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve Him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before Him all our days. In verses 74 and 75, we essentially have the the outline for this morning's message. Um, All I'm going to do is unpack that phrase by phrase. But what we see is that Christ was overcoming all these ancient foes so that we might serve Him, God. So that we would be brought into the service of God. That's going to be heading number one, that we might serve Him. But then this service is qualified as you keep reading in those two verses. And it's qualified in light of Christ's victory over Satan's sin and death. Because what we see is we are going to be able to serve him without fear. He's overcome Satan. No fear anymore in this service. We see we're going to be able to serve him in holiness and righteousness before him. Because Christ has done away with sin. Holy, righteous. And then we see that we're going to serve him in this way all our days. Why? Because Christ has dealt with death. Four headings essentially there. We're going to begin then with what I said there at at, at the first, that we might serve him. Now, here comes a little, little Bible nerd kind of study for you for a moment, so bear with me. But it, it is important that we understand what um, what is contained in this word serve. Um, there is so much more uh, than the English word can convey in the Greek word here. I want you to know this word, okay? I don't always do this. Sometimes I do when I think it's important. This one, it's important. Latruo, okay? Latruo is the Greek word behind our English Serve. Now, why is this important? Because we think serve, and we're, th- we're, we're, we're thinking of, you know, we're going and we're doing a few things for God. And we're, we're, we're His servants, so we're doing some work for Him. When this word is used, what it recalls is a massive development throughout the Old Testament and into the New, as we, we'll watch here in a moment. But it's one of three words in the Greek Old Testament and the Greek New Testament used to describe the worship of the people of God. So it's more than just we're kind of doing a few things. This is one of the key terms used to describe the people of God's worship of Him. All right? 
Now, it first shows up um, in our Greek Old Testaments in the context of the Exodus. And this is awesome. Because what we see is that God's goal of redeeming for himself a people from the bondage of Egypt is that they might serve him. When God is commissioning Moses... Uh, to go and, and speak to Pharaoh and, and he starts to, you know, he's wanting to bring out Israel. Here's what he says. Verse 22 of Exodus 4. You shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, this is awesome, let my son go that he may serve me. The true Okay. It's the point of redemption. It's the point of the exodus. I'm bringing them out from the house of bondage so that they may serve me. It's a bit counterintuitive, isn't it? I am freeing them so they can serve. And this continues to show up again and again in the book of Exodus. Just to, just to overwhelm you with, with the amount of times God says this, it's in Exodus 716, 8-1, 8-20, 9-1, 9-13, 10-3, and that's just the tip of the iceberg. That they may serve me. That's what I'm doing all this, this, this Exodus redemptive stuff for. And then when God brings Israel out of Egypt to serve him, this word, latruo, then comes to be used primarily of the priesthood. Okay? And what the priests would do in the tabernacle and the temple. That's why it has this real rich worship kind of uh, semantic uh, domain to it. It is, it is recalling it is recalling what the priests would do in the tabernacle and the temple. They were called to serve. They were called to worship in that way. It is um, likely that Zechariah, as he is, as he is singing this, this hymn of praise to God and considering this Davidic Messiah that, that God is raising up, it's likely Zechariah was kind of expecting something along the lines of the Exodus of old. Okay, that God, what he was going to do with this horn of salvation, with Jesus, is, is, is raise up a king who would, who would overcome Rome, set us free, so that we can now be in the temple under the Davidic king like the days of old, serving him, worshiping him like that. It's, po- it's probable that's what Zechariah had in his mind was, a, was about to go down. But as we looked at last week, and we'll continue to see in Luke's Gospel, Jesus has so much more, so much more in mind. <laughs> his purpose is so much broader, so much more expansive than that. It's not just nationalistic salvation here. It's not just Israel <laughs> He's going after everything, everyone, everywhere. You remember what he says to the woman um, at the well there in Samaria, or the Samaritan woman there. It says this, John four twenty one. I want you to hear it. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. And then verse 23, the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. The exodus that Christ will accomplish for His people in His death and resurrection is not merely physical, but spiritual. Not merely national, but universal. It's not on this or that mountain, not even in, on, on, on Mount, uh, in Mount Zion, Jerusalem. Not even there, but everywhere. And it's not just for the Jews, but everyone in spirit and in truth. That's what I'm after. This, 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 this uh, call to serve, call to worship is expanding. It's getting bigger. In Christ. And this is the move towards the priesthood of all believers. Are you familiar with that phrase? 
the idea that this, this priesthood in Israel and this, this kind of elite group that God chose to specifically serve Him in more intimate ways is being broadened out and every person in the family of God, every believer is a priest now in the, in the most uh, amazing sense. Christ is the temple destroyed and raised up in three days, right? You remember this. And then he says, I am taking living stones. This is, this is in Peter. Living stones now are being added to me, the cornerstone. Christ, the cornerstone of this, this broader, more cosmic temple. And we, his people, being added to it like a building. Except it's, it's now not in Jerusalem located in the physical. It's in the spirit. And what this means, is that now, in light of this, this exodus, that, that, this new exodus that Christ has accomplished for us, and under this new covenant, what we see in the New Testament is that we are priests to our God in, in, in a temple that is essentially everywhere, that is the cosmos, that, that is the world. So wherever we are, Latruo, service is happening now because of Jesus. And this is why Paul, after developing for 11 chapters in the book of Romans, all that Jesus has accomplished for us, all that the gospel means for us now, this is why after 11 chapters, Paul comes out in chapter 12 and he says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God that I just expounded for 11 chapters. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. La truo. Translated worship there, service. We are now priests offering to God our very lives wherever we are in service of Him. Everything in your life falls under the banner of Latruo, worship, service. It's Latruo at 3 a.m. when your baby's crying and mommy's got to go in again. To, to nurse or to, to care. It's Latruo uh, when you're sitting on the couch and you speak a kind word to your spouse, even though you're, you're just so hurt inside and offended. Living sacrifice here, offering to God my worship and service and praise. It's Latruo on the freeway. This is a hard, San Jose, this is hard. It is Latruo on the freeway when that guy who hasn't waited in line just zips alongside and then decides, now I've got to get over, right? And you let him go. You let him go. Living sacrifices, offering to God, priests offering to God our spiritual service, worship. All because of Christ's redemptive work for us on the cross. Now that, you can take your Bible nerd glasses off, that is the theological current that we drop into when we come to this single word. That we might serve Him. That's where God is going. That's where Jesus is going. We have been set free to serve. He's dealt with Satan, sin, and death so we can, we can come under the yoke of a new master, a yoke that is, that is, that is not burdensome, but is light. We've been set free to serve. Indeed, it's actually in our serving of God that we finally find our freedom. <laughs> Now, 
This brings up something that uh, must be settled, I think, in our hearts before the Christian life can even really begin. And, and, and not everyone's going to tell you this. There are seeker-sensitive churches and, and prosperity-driven churches that are not going to tell you this, but I think the Christian life uh, begins when this question is settled. Does God exist for us? Or do we exist for Him? Is it Him to serve me? Or me to serve Him? Now, admittedly, the distinction is a little subtle and, 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 it's, and it's tough because it's true that God serves us and Jesus you know, girds Himself and, and washes our feet. All these things. But bear with me as we, as we kind of think here because I believe that distinction is very significant. And if you follow the trajectory, you end up in something that's worlds apart. Because if God exists to serve you, here's what happens in your prayer life. You're going to become bossy. It's this kind of bossy tone in your prayers, right? And, and, and as you're walking through your day, as you're walking through your day, there's kind of these grumbles. Well, why did this have to happen? Why did this go this way? And this shouldn't be this way. And, 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 and your faith, what you'll find is, is you're on a path to kind of falling away. Because what, what essentially happens is, I hired you, God, for a certain purpose. I commissioned you to serve me. It's not going the way that I wanted. Therefore, you're fired. That's, that, that's the way a lot of people approach God, unfortunately, especially in America, where it's kind of a cool, not a cool thing, but it's an acceptable thing to do. You don't, you don't, you're not in threat of persecution if you come to Jesus. Those guys in those countries and those places know, <laughs> no way, I'm for Him. I'm not going to get anything much out of it here on this earth. <laughs> I could get killed, but oh, how I want to be in His service, right? If we exist for Him, on the other hand, if we come to serve Him, we have raised the the white flag of of surrender. And we've put ourselves in the hands of the Holy One. And say, hey, you make of me what you want me to be. I'm the clay. You're the potter. I'm the child. You're the father. I'm the creation. You're the creator. I am the servant. You are the master. It's a major, major uh, shift in the heart at that point. I trust you. I'm here for you. What you think is best for me, okay, let's do that. Even if it hurts, trust you. The irony, of course, is that those who would enlist God to serve themselves find themselves utterly empty and dissatisfied. And those who lower themselves to be servants of God, get down low, find themselves filled (laughs) to the fullest. There is a slavery that oppresses the soul of any who would who would seek to make um, this world his his servant his his slave i could put it like this there are cuffs in the cookie jar okay hear me on that you reach in you're thinking yes i want this world i want my cake i want to you know i want and, and whatever they say what's that what's that phrase and eat it too save my cake and eat it too i'm going into the cookie jar it's all about me you can't keep me from this you put your hand in the cookie jar and the cuffs clasp around your wrists there's a slavery to your appetites that starts to develop. And the people that, that look around and want everyone, including God, to be in their service find themselves enslaved. This irony, this tragic irony to it. And on the other side of it, it's amazing because there's this freedom that liberates the soul of anyone who would make himself the servant of God. 
Coming into the service of God is less like a slave taking on chains. Even though we're coming into service, even though the Bible even calls us his slaves, it's a lot less like taking on chains and a lot more like a bird taking flight. Coming into the service of God, being his servant, is not degrading, it's dignifying. It's not dehumanizing, it's rehumanizing. It is, it is actually starting to come into what we were created for. It's coming back into our place in the universe. And in that, there is unbelievable freedom. This is just an interesting side note. I wonder... I didn't know this. I wondered this for a while. And I, I, I was like, I, I, now's the time. Because I have a feeling Latruo uh, is behind why we call uh, uh, what we're doing here right now a Sunday service. Why is it called a service? Why, why does the church typically call, call their, their, their gatherings a service? Now, the American in us says, I know why. It's because the leaders have been working all week and they're getting ready to, to serve me, the consumer. <laughs> I'm here to get something like, like you would go to a restaurant and, and expect them to serve you or go to a movie theater and expect them to entertain and serve you. But that is not, that is not where we get the term, you guys. It's not why we call this a service. It's not the leaders here to serve you, the consumer. It's all of us here together gathered to serve our God. It's Latruo in the noun form, Latreia, behind why we call this a service. It's us coming together, not you looking at me and you better give us something good, Nick, but Nick and everyone else here down here going, God, we are here for you. We are beneath you. We are saying, we're putting ourselves down below your will and your word and we're saying, here we are. Our lives are a living sacrifice. We want to serve you. Here's the sacrifice of praise. Here's our love and our kindness. All done to your honor. Now it is absolutely true. Am I trying to serve you? Yes. And are you trying to serve one another? I sure hope so and I believe so. But in all of our service, there was one driving aim. And that is to serve Him. Wouldn't that just change the way you come to church, especially in America? If you just remember the term service, why we call it that, and what we're here to do, that it's not just all Nick, you know, but all of us. My heart's on the ground. God, what do you want to make of me? There's this, there's this awesome, there's this awesome quote by Martin Luther. I cut it out of my manuscript. I'll throw it back in here. Where he says, he says, God creates everything out of nothing, right? Therefore, until we become nothing, he can make nothing of us. You get that? So we're coming here saying, God, it's you. We are in your hands. We are nothing. We want you to, to form us. He's like, I could work with that. All right, now... There is kind of one side of how we might approach um, this idea of being called into his service. There, there are those who might say, ah, no, 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 no. I want God to serve me. Now, there's another side that I want to, to address here that I, I assume more of us probably are, are at. And, and that is, you're hearing what I'm saying? about God setting us free, redeeming us, the second and greater exodus, so that we can serve. And you're saying, everything in you, your heart just rises up, yes, I want to serve. I want, I want to, to, to be in, 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 in that sort of, on that sort of a mission for God. I want to do it. Oh my goodness. I want to soar in the, the great blue sky of serving Yahweh. But I can't. Look at me. I'm pathetic. 
I'm the biggest loser in this room. I am unworthy of such a high calling. No way, not me. There are those whom God has given wings by His grace, and yet because of their own sense of unworthiness, the guilt and shame that plagues a lot of us, they feel it more appropriate, more becoming for them to shuffle around on the ground in the dirt. Redemption, Christ has done, gives His people wings. You can serve. You can come into the story of God. I want to use your life. I have a plan for your life. I have good works prepared beforehand for you to walk in. You've got wings here. And some of us say, Ah, God, that, that sounds good, but you must, you have the wrong guy, you have the wrong girl. I think I'll stay here on the ground. You must not know my background. You must not know my story. You must not know what I was doing last night. No way. Not me. It's to you that the rest of these verses are directed. Because now what we're going to see is is this service of God described in, in breathtakingly positive terms in light of Christ's victory over Satan, sin, and death. He wants to set us free to serve. And I want I want to sit with this, sit in this with you, and 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 let's let God minister that to us. The first qualification of of um, our service of Him is given uh, there at the end of verse seventy four. It says this. Let's look at it. That we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve Him how, without fear. Without fear. And here we see our serving of God qualified in light of Christ's triumph over Satan. I think it's the enemies that are in view here, clearly in the, in the text. He's, he's overcome the enemies, delivered us from the hand of our enemies, the, the chief, the arch enemy that we looked at last week being Satan. Therefore, we can serve him without fear. If I'm without enemy, I'm without fear. That's what's happening here. There is an unflinching boldness that should, that can characterize the children of God because of what Jesus has done. Listen to Hebrews 2, verses 14 and 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, He, Jesus, Himself, likewise partook of the same things. Now here's his point. Here's why he did it. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to life-long slavery. Here's the greater exodus. You know, Pharaoh is just a, a picture of Satan and the slave, the slave driver kind of thing, the slave house that he runs. And this Exodus, Christ comes down and sets us free from that fear of Satan and death. Now, a lot of us, a lot of us um, would probably not say, you know, if we were to ask you, hey, what are you afraid of? You know, what, what keeps you from serving God? What keeps you from stepping out in boldness? A lot of us probably would not say, Satan. (laughs) We don't tend to think in the spiritual dimension like Paul would call us to in Ephesians 6 and other places. We would say things like, um, I'm afraid of people's opinions. That's why, even though it's burning in my heart, and I want my coworkers to know about him, I want them to hear the gospel. More often than not, I just stand there just stammering or my tongue tied because I'm afraid they're going to think I'm, 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 I'm unevolved they're going to think I'm, I'm, I'm a fool I could lose my job 
I'm afraid. Or we might say, I'm afraid of, I'm afraid of money in the bank. That's what I mean by that. I, I, I want to, to serve God by giving. I want to just, I want to just give even abundantly, like Paul says, I think in Corinthians, giving be, beyond my means. Just amazing. Just going beyond what I even have. Generous to the church or to people in need. I want to give like that. I want to serve God like that, but, I mean, if I get too crazy, let's, let's get real here. Uh, who, who's going to take care of my family, my kids, and the food we need on the table? And I'm kind of afraid of that. So I'm making sure we don't, we don't get too crazy here with our generosity. Those are the sorts of things we might say we're afraid of, right? Now, so we do have fears and they do stop us from serving God. But I, 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 would, I would say the author of Hebrews is right in that underneath all of these fears, if you were to keep tracing them down, it's ultimately a fear of the devil, of Satan. A fear, in other words, that this world is still in his control. That at the end of the day, God might not be able to make it all work for good for me. He might not be there for me when I really need Him. There's a fear that this world is not necessarily in God's hands. This is why Paul would respond to all this and say in Romans 8.15, You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. You have two options in Paul's world. You have a spirit of fear because you're subject to this lifelong slavery and the devil and, and we're, we're so afraid that we just have to keep working and keep trying and saving up and storing in our barns and making sure everybody likes us and posturing and all this sort of stuff. There's that slavery to fear, the spirit of fear. But we have now on the other side the spirit of, interestingly he says, the spirit of adoption. Now why does he contrast that? The spirit of fear with the spirit, not of boldness, but of adoption. How does that help me with my fear? It's awesome. The spirit of the risen Christ, the triumphant Christ, the one who's overcome the the powers of this world, is now in us. And his spirit, the chief job, is to convince us that we have a father in heaven. To convince us that we are no longer orphans and under the sway of the devil, but we have been adopted. We have been adopted by the one who is really in control, that you have a father and this is your father's world. Do you understand how that contradicts the fear that we so often have? He will be there for me in the end. He's got my back. My daddy has my back. I'm his boy. So what if they mock me when I share? So what if I give away my money and the bank account starts to dwindle down? He's the one who owns the cattle on a thousand hills and he is for me, not against me. No fear there. They're just freedom to serve and enjoy him. Now, we'll keep going. We can serve God without fear. But there is more here. As we keep reading, we find this service of God qualified in a second way. So, read with me again back in our text in verses 74 and the first part of 75. That we might serve Him without fear, here it is, in holiness and righteousness before Him. So in the first part, we had our, serv- our, our service qualified in light of Christ's victory over Satan. We serve him without fear. Now we see our service qualified in light of Christ's victory over sin. I can serve him in holiness and blameless before him. 
There's no, no fear of Satan. There's no condemnation because of sin. Has anyone ever been kept from serving God because they just felt too dirty? They just felt like too much of a screw-up. I don't belong here. I shouldn't open my mouth. What kind of a hypocrite am I? I want to read you a vision given to Zechariah. Not the Zechariah from Luke's Gospel, but the Zechariah the prophet in the Old Testament. This is Zechariah 3. It's a few books back from um, Matthew's Gospel, the start of the New Testament. Zechariah. I actually would want you to turn there if you can. Zechariah 3. Um, We actually are going to begin in the last verse of chapter 2. And then we'll read to um, the fifth verse of chapter 3. So like I said, Zechariah is near the end of the Old Testament. A few books before it. This is awesome. This is review for Chris Keener's home group. <laughs> I visited them on uh, Thursday night and they were looking at this text actually. Because I didn't get to it last week. <laughs> Start in verse 13. This is a vision given to Zechariah, okay, about Joshua the high priest at the time of the temple's rebuilding there. But verse 13 of chapter 2 sets the stage. Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord. For He has roused Himself from His holy dwelling. Already I'm getting a little scared. <laughs> and then chapter, er, chapter 3, verse 1. Then He showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord. And Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you. I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. We're going to walk through this here and try to imagine the scene. Because it's amazing. It's amazing. Um, This would have been a nightmare. An utter nightmare for Joshua, right? I mean, you've got to consider, put yourself in his shoes for a moment. Even from a worldly perspective, when you're going to meet someone important, when you've got some important meeting you're about to do, I mean, say like you're about to go to like a job interview, or a um, high school reunion, you know, where you're like, oh gosh, I don't want to be the one that like everyone thinks, oh, she turned out weird. I gotta, you know, or, or it's like your wedding day and you're gonna meet, you're gonna meet your husband as you walk down the aisle, whatever it is. I mean, what are you doing when you have those sorts of meetings, uh, in, on the, on the near horizon? You're, you're like laying out clothes the night before. Uh, if you're like me, I never iron, but I'm dusting off the iron at this point. You know, girls are doing up their hair, calling in all the forces, right? You break out those mirrors, those ones, I don't even know what you're supposed to do with them, where they like magnify the imperfections of your face. You can see every square centimeter. I gotta be perfect. I gotta be ready. This is a big day. And so you imagine Joshua here getting the call. From this holy God who's roused himself now. He says, I want Joshua, I want the high priest, the one who's called to represent all the people in holiness, all the people of Israel. I want him to come before me, present himself. You think Joshua's going, okay, get myself ready. He's looking in the mirror, he's thinking, okay, I'm looking pretty good. 
Let's do this. He starts to walk into God's presence. And here's, here's the thing about our God. I mean, He dwells in unapproachable light, right? And so as you come into His presence, there's this light that exposes things that natural eye never sees. We can't see it. So Joshua's coming forward, thinks he's looking pretty good, thinks he's all covered and got all his garments and everything right, the way that God prescribed in the law and all this stuff. And he's showing up. And as he's stepping into this light, he's looking down into his horror. There's just stains and filth and spots and wrinkles. And all the time spent preparing has done nothing. See, I got to show up. I got to stand before God like this. And this is why, you know, he would just say with Isaiah, and this is what happened with Isaiah, Isaiah 6, 5, Woe is me, for I am lost, and I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Why? For my eyes have seen the King. I step into His presence thinking I'm pretty good, and I just fall to the ground. <laughs> Woe. I'm covered in filthy rags. Woe is me. But it gets worse for Joshua until it gets better. It gets worse though because Satan is standing by to accuse. That's what Satan means in the Hebrew. It's just a transliteration of the Hebrew verb that means uh, uh, to accuse or the, 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 adver- you know, the adversary or whatever the word is. Satan is there to accuse, we read in verse 1, standing at God's right hand to accuse Joshua. Every wrinkle, every spot. I see it, God. Do you? Joshua, do you see it? He is unclean, unfit to serve this high role of the high priest in Israel. Get him out of here. The scene is is of like the heavenly courtroom, the heavenly tribunal. Satan would be kind of the prosecuting attorney, right? And you're looking for the defense attorney. You say, Where, where's Joshua's defense? Is he representing himself? He's not doing a good job. He kind of looks down and says, uh, Yeah, Satan, you're right. I am filthy. I am covered in a mess. Your accusations stick. But a voice comes to his defense from the most unlikely source comes from the judge himself. This is what we read, verse 2. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? (laughs) Satan... You see rightly, this man is a mess. But you do not see fully. You always focus on half the story, half the truth. That's Satan's specialty. You are right. He is dirty. He is a sinner. But you forgot the most important part of the story. I've chosen him. I've plucked him like a brand from the fire. I've forgiven him. I'm washing him. I'm giving him new vestments, new clothes, new garments, and he will serve me in this office. Get out of the courtroom. Isn't that awesome? We are called and equipped to serve our God, not on the basis of our own clean, you know, garments, how good we look, but on the basis of God's grace, and in particular, on the basis of of the, the ultimate, the eternal high priest and his work. Read this in Hebrews 9, 11 and 12. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, fulfilling all that the Old Testament high priest office stood for. 
Then, through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, not the tabernacle, not the temple in Jerusalem, but the heavenly temple, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. And then, check it out, verse 14, this blood of Christ, what does it do for us? It purifies our conscience from dead works to serve. Latruo, the living God. This high priest would stand before God with His blood, His payment for my sin. That's how you get the new, that's how you get the new garments. And that's how this man is cleansed, purified, so that I can, the truo, serve, worship God freely. In holiness, righteousness. I'm reminded of a story ascribed to Martin Luther. You know, we're almost, we're almost done here. Whether all this is historically accurate or not, I, I'm not sure. Um, but regardless, <laughs> the, the illustration it puts forward is profoundly biblical. Um, so let me read it to you. In the conversations of Luther, which by the way, if, you, if you're not familiar, was one of the, the kind of the, the spearhead for the Reformation in the 16th century of the church. This is what we read. In the conversations of Luther which are in some measure a posthumous uh, publication, we read that Satan, either in reality or in a dream, appeared in the depth of the night and addressed him in the following terms. Luther, how dare you to pretend to be a reformer of the church? Luther, let your memory do its duty. Let your conscience do its duty. You have committed these, or you have committed this sin. You have been guilty of that sin. You have omitted this duty. You have neglected that duty. Let your reform begin in your own bosom. How dare you attempt to be a reformer of the church? You're a sinner, Luther. What are you doing standing up for God and His Word? You're a sinner. Get out of the game. Luther, with the self-possession and magnanimity by which he was characterized, said to Satan, Take up the slate that lies on the table and write down all the sins with which you now have charged me. And if there be any additional, append them too. Satan rejoiced to have the opportunity of accusing And he took up a pencil and wrote a long and painful roll of the real or imputed sins of Luther. So he said, I'll take you up on that. I'll write them all down. I know. The accuser of the brothers. Now pause with me for a moment. What is it for you? You might not have this sort of vivid experience with the devil that, say, Joshua had or perhaps Martin Luther had. But he's, he's on the move in your life. He's at work. He's scribbling things down right now. He's writing stuff. He's bringing in that condemnation. What is it for you? How does he get you out of the game? How does he get you down? How does he cover you with guilt and shame? And what do you do with it? What do you do when you're standing there with Joshua, when you're standing there with Martin Luther, when you're standing there with me, guilty sinner? What do you do when the devil's coming at you? Check this out. Keep reading. Luther said, Have you written the whole? Satan answered, Yes, and a black and dark catalog it is, and sufficient to deter you from making any attempt to reform others till you have first purified and reformed yourself. Luther said, take up the slate and write as I shall dictate to you. Here you go. My sins are many. I agree. My clothes are dirty. My transgressions in the sight of an infinitely holy God are countless as the hairs of my head. In me there dwells no good thing. He's just saying, you are right with that half of the story. 
But Satan, after the last sin you have recorded, write the announcement which I shall repeat from 1 John 1.7. Hear this over your own lives. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses from all sin. Luther in that text had peace. And Satan, knowing the source of his peace, had no more advantage over him. It's what we talked about last week in Revelation 12. The accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. They conquer him, how? By the blood of the Lamb that cleanses us from all sin. And the word of their testimony. (laughs) Satan, you are right. I am a sinner. Nothing good dwells in me. But I am in Christ. Get out of here. He's thrown out. Joshua, the high priest of Israel. Sinner. Martin Luther, the great reformer of the church. Sinner. You and I, sinners. And yet, our garments washed white in the blood of the Lamb. We are called into His service. We are given wings. We can fly. There's no sin. There's no guilt. There's no shame holding us back from the service of our God. Finally, we end with the third qualifier, and and I'm just going to read you something from Revelation. So in case you're worried, don't be. The service is qualified now in, in, in a third way. We've seen that we serve Him without fear because He's taken down Satan. We see that we serve Him in holiness and righteousness before Him because He's done away with sin by His blood on the cross. And now we see that we serve Him without fear in holiness and righteousness before Him all our days because He's taken down death. I just want to read you Revelation 21. Verse 22, it's ten verses. You just close your eyes if you want. You can sit here and and, and listen. But I want to show you where God is taking you. I want to show you your future. Because it involves serving Him in that way, in the most freeing, the most flying like a bird sort of way. Forever. This is Revelation 21, starting in verse 22. And I saw no temple. Speaking about the new Jerusalem now, there's no temple there because as we already saw, God is moving towards making the entire world, the entire cosmos a temple. And that work comes to completion now in the new heavens and new earth. I saw no temple in the city. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk. And the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day. And there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false. But, hear this, only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. And we know from earlier in the book of Revelation, our names are written in that book by the Lamb's blood. Verse 1 of chapter 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will, hear me, worship Him. La truo Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, 
and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign. How long? Forever and ever. Let's pray. God, what you have accomplished for us by sending your Son, the Passover Lamb of all Passover lambs, is astounding. God, we are so free now to serve you courageously without fear. Done away with the enemy of our soul. And we can stand before you with joy. Enter into the joy of your master, you'll say to your servants. Not because of anything good in us, but because of Christ. And we will be in your presence, serving and reigning, servants and kings, (laughs) forever. Thank you, Lord, we lift our praise, the sacrifice of our praise to you. In Jesus' name, amen.